Have you ever felt that some Bible studies are too much? You know, they're too long, they're too deep, they're too serious, they're too theological, and yeah, maybe they're too boring. <laughs> well, we're going to try to remedy that with this podcast, the Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. We're going to take a close look at Scripture. We're going to look at the cellular base of what God was saying through His Word. But we're not going to make it too much of anything. We're going to try to make it just right for everything. There is one thing that appears in pretty much all of the Christmas stories, and yet it is always in the background. Uh, We see it, we hear about it, we read about it, and yet we never really talk about it, and it kind of fades into the background. But actually, it's a very important symbol of the Christmas story, when we're looking at it, when we're looking at Christmas Day from an Old Testament perspective. And if I were to ask you what that part of the Christmas story is, you obviously wouldn't say it's the star or the angels or the shepherds or the wise men. I mean, these are up front and center, right? So there is something in the story that's important that we can trace all the way back to the time of Jeremiah and even farther back to the time of David that is also a part of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem with Mary and Joseph. And you're going to be really surprised to hear what it is. But that's what this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study is all about. Okay, so today we are going to look at something that... um, might be a surprise to you when it comes to a part of the Christmas story that I want to focus on that is almost always a part of the Christmas story every single time you see it uh, done. uh, It's almost always a part of it, whether it be a movie or stage (laughs) or whatever, and yet it always is in the background. And so today I want to bring it to the foreground because I think it's very, I think it's a story that is very interesting, very interesting. So uh, if I were to say to you, uh, what part of the Christmas story, when I say it's a part of all of them, but it kind of fades to the background, does this, what would you think maybe we would be, I would be talking about. Anything that you, crosses your mind about what possibly it could be? We're going to talk about that, actually, but that's not, that's part of it, that's not exactly what I'm concentrating on, but that will be part of it. <laughs> Jan knows. No, but that's another good one. How about the Elizabeth, good one, but that's not it. No, okay, so well, turn, see if you can guess after we read this passage. So uh, Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. It's familiar to you. Now it happened in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus to register all the world's inhabitants. This was the first census taken when Quinarius was governor of Syria. 
everyone was traveling to be registered in his own city. Now Joseph went up from the, from the Galilee out of the town of Nazareth to Judah, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was from the house and the family of David. He went to register with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. But while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in strips of cloth and set him down in a manger, since there was no room for them in what? The The inn and the guest room. This This is the controversy. This is the controversy. There was no room in for them in, was it an inn or was it a guest room? It was a house. Or was it a house with a guest room? Yeah. Well, so the theory that it was not an actual inn is based on the fact that the word translated as inn can also mean guest room. It can also mean inn. It literally means habitation. Uh, It also would be translated as lodging. There was no room for them in the lodging. There was no room for them in the place where they would have habitation. Two other places, the same word is translated as guest room, is when Jesus told his disciples to go and find the room where they would make ready for the Last Supper. And he says, go and find this person and ask them, is the guest room ready? And that word is the same word here as the inn. Or again, that's why some of your translations do say guest room. Actually, mine doesn't say it. I just wrote it in there. Oh, okay. We discussed this topic with um, Mike. That are in the Pacific. Oh, okay, yeah. Mike, you know, Mike, Mike did it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, and the theory is that, so if that word is used as guest room in other places in the Bible, then it should be guest room here too. Um, and also along with that is the thinking that, well, Bethlehem was a very small town, an out-of-the-way town, and why in the world would there be an inn near Bethlehem uh, when it was such a small place? In other words, too small, too small to have an inn, too much out-of-the-way place to have an inn. And so... Uh, what people say is that then, so this should be actually translated guest room that was probably in a house, that it may have been a relative of Joseph since they're going back there because this is where his family is from. And it's a house of a relative and it's a guest room and this is, this is where it all happened. But I don't think so. So I think, because it can also be translated as an inn. It can also be known... As, as a lodge. And so I want to give you, and I'm going to kind of tell you why I think that there was, I think it was an actual inn. It was an actual lodge. It was a place, it was the Holiday Inn of Bethlehem. Okay? And, uh, <laughs> and what I'm going to say is, I'll give you a little pre-glimpse of uh, what I'm going to say. And that is that there was only one inn in Bethlehem. You're right in the fact that it was a small town, out of the way town. It didn't have a need for a lot of inns, but it did have one inn, and it's this inn in Bethlehem. And it was a well-known place. So, that, so Luke was a physician. He thought out what he was going to tell us in his story. And there's a reason that he included it in this story, in this account. It, he didn't just arbitrarily happen to throw it in. He, he purposely gave it to us. And I think for the people of his day, that they all knew about the inn of Bethlehem. The inn of Bethlehem was a well-known place. And so when, he didn't need to say, hey, it's that place that end down Main Street, you turn right, you turn, that, it's the one on uh, Walnut Street. You know, no, he just said it was the end in Bethlehem. And everyone knew what end he was talking about because it was a well-known end, a famous end, an end with a lot of history. And you didn't have to say anything more at that time because everyone knew it. It'd be like today 
if we said such and such a thing happened at the White House? Well, you're not going to think it's the White House down in Cincinnati. You're not going to think it's the White House out on uh, you know, Walnut Street in Anderson Township. No. When we say the White House, everybody knows what? It's the White House in Washington, D.C., right? It's the residence of the president. So it's the same kind of idea with this in that uh, all Luke had to do was say it's the inn in Bethlehem, and everyone knew what it was talking about. Now, I want, as an example in real life of how this, an example of this is Jan's family. Her uncle, her mom's brother, owns a motel. And that motel is in the thriving, huge metropolis of Pennington Gap, Virginia. Now, Pennington Gap, Virginia, you think, that's a backwater, that's a small town, no one lives there hardly, There's, they would not need a motel. But it has one. And so if you say to someone in that area, hey, is that the motel? They know what you're talking about, it's the one. There's one, the one in pain, yes. And you know what, just off as an aside, you know what the name of that motel is down in Pennington Gap, Virginia, the one and only motel that's in Pennington Gap, Virginia? It's called the Convenient Inn. <laughs> the Convenient Inn. Okay. So, they're busy. They are. Yes, they do a good business down there. So. Okay, so we're going to go back. I want you to turn back, if you would, to Jeremiah. Chapter 41 of Jeremiah. So what's happening in chapter 41 of Jeremiah is that the king of Babylon has put someone in charge of Jerusalem and Israel to oversee Jeremiah 41. Chapter 41 of Jeremiah, the king of Babylon has put a person in place there who is to be in charge, uh, you know, in charge of the area. Well, a small group of uh, Jewish men have assassinated that person. So uh, they figure, you know what, that probably isn't going to sit well with the king of Babylon, and he's probably going to send people to get us to exact revenge on us. So they very smartly decided, we gotta get out of town fast. So chapter 41 kind of tells us about what all happened. And at the end of chapter 41, let's go to, um, let's see here. Let's go to verse 40, verse 16 of chapter 41 of Jeremiah. Chapter 41, Jeremiah, verse 16. So it says, Then Johanan, son of Kerea, and all the commanders of the forces that were with him, uh, took all the remnant of the people whom he had rescued from Ishmael, son of Nathaniah, from Mizpah, after he had murdered, they asked who they murdered, Gedaliah, son of Ahikim, the men, the soldiers, women, children, and court officials whom he had brought back from Gibeon, and they left and stayed at what do you have there? Garuth Kim, Kim Chan, uh, Kim Ham. Garuth Kim Ham, right? They say that Garuth Kim Ham, which is near where? Bethlehem. In order to go, in order to go on to where? Enter Egypt, away from the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. Okay, so Garuth Kim Ham. Uh, Kimham is the name of a person. Uh, and we're going to look at him uh, here in just a minute. And Garuth is the question. What in the world does Garuth mean? This is in this is a Hebrew word, not a Greek word. So Garuth means in or lodge. So you could read it to say, and they left Jerusalem, they left Jerusalem, and they stayed at 
the inn of Kimham or the lodge of Kimham or Kimham's lodge or Kimham's inn, which is near Bethlehem in order to go to Egypt. So here we are in Jeremiah, about 590 BC, and these men who are running for their lives away from Jerusalem on their way to Egypt stop in Bethlehem, and they need a place to stay for the night, and where do they stay? In an inn near Bethlehem that was Kimham's inn. So, who in the world is this Kimham guy? Okay, so now turn to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, chapter 19. Actually, you go to chapter 17. 2 Samuel, chapter 17. So what's happening in chapter 17 of 2 Samuel is that David's son, Absalom, has come in to take over for his dad. To uh, Absalom has assumed the throne of David. And he's come into Jerusalem to take the throne by force, but David, not wanting to really fight against his son, he leaves and he leaves Jerusalem and lets Absalom come in and take over. And then Absalom follows him to try to defeat David and the men who were with David and put them down uh, permanently. And so in 2 Samuel, go to chapter 17, and we're going to start with verse 24. Verse 24 of chapter 2 Samuel 17. It says, David had reached Mahanaim by the time Absalom crossed the Jordan, he and all the men of Israel with him. So they're fleeing Jerusalem, and they reach this place called Mahanaim. Then go down to verse 27. Now when David reached Mahanaim, Shobai, son of Nahash of Rabbah, and the children of Ammon, Machir, son of Amiel of Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gileite, Gileadite of Rogalim brought beds, basins, clay pots, wheat, barley, flour, roasted grain, beans, lentils, parched seeds, honey, curd, sheep, and cheese from the herd for David and for the people who were with him to eat. For they said, the people must be hungry, weary, and thirsty in the wilderness. Okay, so there is David, and we find him going, we find him and his people being attended to by these men. Okay. Now I'll turn over to chapter 19 of 2 Samuel. Chapter 19 of 2 Samuel. So in chapter 19 of 2 Samuel, Absalom has been defeated. And so David now is going to return to Jerusalem and assume his throne again. So the threat has been put down, and now he's ready to go back, back home, back to the throne, back to Jerusalem. So look at verse uh, 32 of 2 Samuel 19. Verse 32, 2 Samuel 19. It says, Then Barzillai the Gileadite came down from Rogalim, he, and he approached the Jordan with the king to escort him over the Jordan. Now Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old, all of 80. And he had provided for the king during his residence at Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. The king said to Barzillai, cross over with me, and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, how many years are left of my life that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am now 80 years old. Can I distinguish between good and bad? Can your servant taste what I eat or what I drink? Can I listen any more to the voice of singing men and women? Why then should your servant be yet a burden to my lord the king? Your servant would merely cross over the Jordan with the king, but why should the king reward me with such a reward? Please let your servant go back and let me die in my own hometown near the grave of my father and my mother. And then this is the next part. This is the important part. But look, 
Here is your servant. This is his son. This is Barzillai's son. But look, here is your servant, Kimham. Let him cross over with my lord, the king, and do for him what seems good in your eyes. So Barzillai is saying, instead of taking me, I'm an old man, you know, and I can't, I can't taste my food right. I can't hear right. I get no joy. I, and I, I don't have that many days left. I want to die here. So why should I be a burden for you and you be a burden for me? But instead, take my son, Kimham. He's young and, and give to him whatever you would have given to me. And so verse 39, the king answered, Kimham will cross over with me and I will do for him what seems good in your eyes. Whatever you ask of me, I will do for you. When all the people had crossed over the Jordan and as the king was about to cross over, the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him. So he returned to his own place. Then the king crossed over to Gilgal and Kimham and all the people of Judah crossed over with him. And also half the people of Israel escorted the king over. Okay. So there is Kim Ham. There is uh, our friend Kim Ham. So um, the, the, the thinking is that what happened is that when David decided, you know, what is he going to do for Kim Ham to kind of repay Barzillai for his kindness to him, that what he did was he gave Kimham land near Bethlehem. And that Kimham built an inn there. Uh, and this is and this would have been done in uh, like nine hundred, let me look here, yeah, nine seventy-five BC. So in 975 BC, David gives Kimham land near Bethlehem, and Kimham builds an inn and has an inn there. Well, by 590 BC, almost 400 years later, when the people of Jeremiah's time are running away from Jerusalem because they've killed the Babylonian king's person there, the inn is still in operation. They go to Gareth Kimham, the inn of Kimham. The inn, the place where David had given to Kimham 400 years before, where Kimham built the inn, and it's still in operation. And it's the only inn around Bethlehem, but it's a famous inn. So then you fast forward to Mary and Joseph. Now, another 590 years later, and it's still in operation. The, the inn of Kimham is still, still in business near Bethlehem. And by now, it's such a famous place and well-known place because it's been there almost a 1,000 years. And the story is well-known by these people who knew their scripture and knew their history and knew David and knew what happened and knew Kimham was the guy from Barzillai, and they knew the story, then all you had to say was, it's the end. That Mary and Joseph went to the end, and there was no room for them there. And everyone there would have known the whole story. And so that's why I think it wasn't a house, and it wasn't a guest room. It was an actual inn, and the reason I think there was an actual inn is because the Bible itself says there was an inn, there was a lodge near Bethlehem. So the Bible itself says it's, the Bible itself says it's there. I think it was there. I think it was still there during Mary and Joseph's day. Now, if you want to continue to look at the poetry of this, there's a couple of other things that you can think about from the message of what happened. So, for example... When Mary and Joseph, so think about this. Think about this just for a minute. So David, for all intents and purposes, let's just, it was Kim Ham's inn, but it was really David's inn because David gave it the place to Kim Ham. Kim had made the inn. So if you think about it, David has prepared an inn in Bethlehem for his descendants Jesus, the Messiah, 
to go to. A thousand years before Jesus is born. The only reason that Jesus wasn't born in the end is because someone said to them, there's no room for you in the end. And the poetry of that is that even though there was a place prepared for the Messiah to come, the end, that when he came, the people there did not recognize him, but rejected him. Which is exactly what happened to Jesus in the world. He came to a place that was made for him, to a people who were from him, for him. They did not accept him, and they rejected him. So what happened to Mary, what happened to Jesus, even though he's in Mary's womb, what happened to Jesus at the end is symbolic of what happened to Jesus when he came into the world. This is a place prepared for you. This is a place that you are to come, and yet you're, you're rejected, and, and there's, no room, there's no room for you in the end. There's no room for you in the world. Beyond that, the other kind of poetic thing is that the people of Jeremiah's day were fleeing Jerusalem because they were being chased for all intents and purposes. They were being threatened by a king, uh, a leader, who was of Arab descent. Uh, the Babylonians were of Arab descent. Babylon is in today's Iraq, for example. So they're fleeing for their lives from the threat from a king of Arab descent from Jerusalem, from through Bethlehem to Egypt. And it's just exactly what happened with Jesus and David and, uh, and, and uh, Joseph and Mary. They're fleeing a king, a leader, Herod the Great, who was of Arab descent also. He was part Jew and he was part Idumean, which is of Arab descent from Esau. So you have Mary and Joseph fleeing a leader of Arab descent out of Jerusalem through Bethlehem to Egypt, too. The poetry of it is just too good <laughs> to see you know, what happened 590 years ago was exactly what happened to, to Mary and Joseph and, and to Jesus from Bethlehem to Egypt. So... As a matter of fact, if let's look at uh, go to Matthew. Let's go to Matthew for a minute. Matthew two, Matthew two, verse thirteen. Matthew two thirteen. So this is where Egypt comes into play. So we have the people of Jeremiah's day going to Egypt. We have first we have right the uh, Joseph of the Old Testament going to Egypt. Then all his brothers and his father going to Egypt. And that's where they have to come out from with Moses. And now we have Jeremiah and those people of his day go to Egypt. And now we have, after the birth of Jesus, Mary and Joseph go to Egypt, right? So this is interesting. So we look now, it says uh, in Matthew 2, verse 13, Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of Adonai appears to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and went to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death. This was to fulfill what was spoken by Adonai through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Oh, okay. So, guess what? We have a prophecy, don't we? So we're talking about proving Jesus through, and we're talking about having an Old Testament Christmas. How do you have an Old Testament Christmas? Well, you go and look at the prophecies about Jesus' birth that you find in the Old Testament. So here's one right here that Matthew tells us about. He says, to fulfill what was spoken by Adonai through the prophet, saying, out of Egypt I have called my son. So where's that prophecy? Okay, that prophecy is in Hosea. So if you want to go to Hosea, you can, you don't have to, but you can if you want. So in Hosea, it's chapter 11 of Hosea. 
Chapter 11, verse 1. After Danny. After Danny. Then there's always a, yeah. Okay, so, uh, verse, chapter 11, verse 1. Uh, Hosea writes, When Israel was a child or a youth, Twinwood translations this, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now what's interesting about this verse in Hosea is that in Hosea's day, if you, or even up until the time that Jesus was born, for all intents and purposes, if you read this verse, to you it was history. This had already happened. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. For the people before Jesus was born, and Jesus went to Egypt, this people saw this as referring to Moses, to the young nation of Israel who was in Egypt for those years, and they interpreted to say when Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son, his son being the nation of Israel. So their interpretation was that this is history, and this refers to Moses bringing our people out of Egypt, and what this refers to is Hosea saying, hey, we were loved by him, he called us out of Egypt, we are his children, we, we are his son." But Matthew says, no, 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 that's not what this is about. This is about his actual son, and this is about Jesus. And this wasn't history when Hosea said it, it was prophecy. It wasn't history, it was prophecy. And it was prophesying that when the Messiah is born, that as a child, because you love him, you will call him out of Egypt. And that's exactly what happened. Do you know how long that happened from the time they went to Egypt to when Arizona? Uh, so people think it could have been a short period of time, probably less than a year in all likelihood. Cheryl? What verse did Hosea say? 11, verse 1. And he called his name Moses, because he loved him. And he had a Present application, both scripture, you see Mary and Joseph portrayed as being very poor. And yet these kings gave them gold and frankincense and more expensive treasures. So why were they poor? Well, exactly right. They had to finance their trip to Egypt and they had to stay over there for a certain period of time. And they, you know, God provides at just the right time, just what you, you know, he wants you to have. And he provided that for them as they needed it. And as they needed it, they used it. And by the time they came back, it was pretty much all spent up, you know. And so that was exactly, God gave them that just at the right time. So we have a few minutes here. So the next question I have then, I wanted to kind of flesh out a little bit today, too, before we end. Because this is one of the, this is one of the Old Testament Christmas things that we would point to as proof that Jesus was Messiah. Last time we talked about the virgin birth. This time we're talking about that is he comes out of Egypt. And so sure enough, here he comes out of Egypt. It's not the first time we, that God's people have gone to Egypt. They went to Egypt with Moses when he was there. The, the people with Jeremiah's day went to Egypt. And now Mary and Joseph going to Egypt. So the question is, why Egypt? What was it about Egypt that made it the place where Everyone seemed to be going. They don't have to cross any big bodies of water. That's a good point. They're ruled by somebody else, so they're not going to be under the same law. That's true. 
And the south and right there. <laughs> it's just a stone throw away. Yeah. Hop, skip, and a jump. It's just a hop, skip, and a jump away. At this time, they were at peace with Egypt. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, when they first go to Egypt under Joseph, you know, they're kind of in charge for a while, right? Joseph is the prime minister, as it were, and it's a place of refuge at the beginning for, for them because there's a famine coming where they live at home. So they go to Egypt to survive, basically. So they won't starve to death. Well, I came up with a couple of things. So first of all, uh, historically, uh, Alexander the Great, the Greek, and the Greek happened before Rome. So this is before, before Mary and Joseph went to uh, Egypt. Alexander the Great had established a sanctuary for Jews in Alexandria, uh, which was in Egypt, the town that was named after him, Alexander the Great, Alexandria. And... Uh, and so it was a place, kind of a sanctuary city for the Jews, that they could go there and, and feel safe. And uh, Philo, who was a historian back in the day, uh, who wrote about what was happening in his day, in 40, about 40 AD, he made mention in one of his histories that um, there were about a million Jews living in Alexandria at the time. So... It was a place where Mary and Joseph could go and be among other Jews and have a safe place to be at this point. So that's one reason uh, that I think, because Egypt was a refuge of strength to them. So in order to, Herod was an awful guy, okay? And we know that by what he did later, where he had all of the, baby boys, two years old and younger, murdered uh, to try to get rid of Jesus, uh, that he would have gone, had he been able to, to any length to uh, get to Jesus. But he wasn't going to invade Egypt because Egypt was a place of strength. So one reason, and, and, and back in Moses' day, it was a place of strength. At the time of Jeremiah's day, it was a place of strength. So it was a, a refuge, a place of refuge where they could go and, and be protected and find uh, a safety because of the strength of Egypt, that, that they were going to be safe there because no one was going to invade Egypt in those days. Uh, so uh, it was a, a place of strength for those who were weak. So that's one thing. I think another thing, too, is uh, it was an unfamiliar place. So you put, you take people out of their homeland. It's just, Let's just concentrate on Mary, Mary and Joseph here for, for a minute. I mean, they grew up in Nazareth. Going to Bethlehem is a big deal for them. And now they have to go all the way to Egypt. It's going to be a very unfamiliar place for them. Kind of scary, maybe. Because they're coming from the country, and Egypt is the city. And they're going to feel a little bit intimidated, probably, and a little bit afraid, I would think. I would be nervous. So when, when God puts them in an unfamiliar place, who do they rely on? Yes, right. He's putting them in a place that feels threatening to them when he's actually taking care of them. But to them, human nature is they're feeling threatened because this is Egypt. Uh, and they have to rely on him. And it, I'm sure that you, if you've gone to a new job, if you've, if you've moved to a different state or a different city, at first you kind of feel the same way, don't you? It's like, I don't know anybody, I don't know the place, and you feel a little bit, and in that time, that's when you come closer to God, because you say, God, I'm in your hands here, because I, I don't know. So I think part of that was for Mary and Joseph to, I mean, they were both righteous people, but even more so that put them in a place where they really relied on, on God. And then I think the other thing is, is that it proves God's faithfulness because he never leaves them there. He never leaves them in Egypt. He brings them home. And in the case of the Israelites under Moses, they were there a while, but he didn't leave them there. He was faithful to bring them home. In the case of Mary and Joseph, 
He didn't leave them there. He brought them back home. And I think they came, I think the Israelites came back home a different people. When they came with, uh, you know, they came with Joshua, that they were a different people uh, because of what they had experienced in Egypt. I think when Mary and Joseph came back to Nazareth after being in Egypt, they came back different people. And uh, it was for the good and, and for their good. And so God proved his faithfulness for, by bringing them, bringing them home again. So I think some of those are also the reasons of why it was Egypt in all of those cases. So. I really like that, that there was a remnant in Alexandria. I was thinking there might be a remnant in Egypt, but not Alexandria. A million people. Uh, maybe across the border. But um, he may have had family there. There was a remnant there. Maybe he knew. There were several Jewish enclaves throughout Egypt uh, in that time, but Alexandria was the largest yeah. of all of them. So, yeah. Anything, anybody, any other observations? Uh, but I think it's kind of cool to think about the end like that. Oh, yeah, I had, a, I did have, I don't, I have a quotation here from John MacArthur I wanted to share with you. He says, the Old Testament writers were the Lord's spokesmen. Just as they had no way of knowing, apart from divine revelation, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, they had no other way of knowing that he would live a while in Egypt. The flight to Egypt was one more, was one more piece of divine evidence that Jesus was God's son, the promised Messiah. As God had once brought the people of Israel out of Egypt to be his chosen nation, he now had brought out his greater son to be the Messiah. So that is nice. Of I would also like to yeah. Yeah. So maybe there was this inn there, like we said. But my guess is because Bethlehem was small and a lot of people were having to come back, that many, many people did read that word. Oh, absolutely. I'm sure they did. Yeah, it was it was hard to find a place to sleep so in Bethlehem. I think it was it was part of the end. I think it was near the end. I think it was maybe a, a place like that, like an inn, would have to have a stable to take care of people's livestock. I mean, people were traveling on donkeys and horses and what so. So I think they would have to have had. I think the inn itself would have have to have had some kind of a stable associated with it. So I think that's what happened. So okay. Well, before we go to prayer time, I'm gonna oh, okay. I wrote, I wrote a story real quick. I want to share with you. We're going to run a little bit late. Get, can you give me five extra minutes today? So if you remember, I said a couple weeks ago that I didn't think that Mary told Joseph that she was pregnant. I think he found out some other way. Because if I read Matthew the way I want to read it, it seems to me like when the angel appeared to Joseph and told him that it was a surprise to Joseph, that he had no prior knowledge to this. So maybe it was too soon. Maybe it happened very soon after the angel appeared to Mary, so she wasn't showing. But I just wrote a story. Is what would I think if she was showing, and what, how would that have happened? So here's a quick little story. It said, "This is this is the I will figure it out Christmas." It's called the I will figure it out Christmas. It says, "Poor Joseph. He thought he knew exactly what to expect. He was in love with the most beautiful girl in the world." She lived just down the road, and he was going to marry her. Marrying Mary. It had such a nice ring to it, and it was all set. What a wonderful day it would be. Since his betrothal to Mary, he had spent hours planning everything. Where the ceremony would take place, who would be invited, what kind of food and wine would be served, the priests, the music, the clothes. He had planned where they would live, anticipated what their life would be like, guessed how many children they would have, everything. And everything was going as planned. Everything was right on schedule. God was so good. He hadn't seen Mary since the day of the engagement, though, uh, which was the way her parents wanted it. But that did not diminish his excitement. It was fun, he thought, to be greeted by passersby with a nod or a familiar wink and a friendly mazel tov. Mazel tov, indeed, an expression of good luck and congratulations. Good luck and congratulations about what, what, what was going to happen and at the same time for what had already happened. That was the perfect description of how he felt, blessed by God for his future with Mary and blessed too by what had already happened between them. Each night he slept soundly, peacefully, and each morning he awoke with joy in his heart. Life was good. And then one sunny afternoon in the middle of the week, 
everything changed. He was in his carpentry shop working on a new table that he planned as the first addition to Mary's kitchen. Absorbed in his work, concentrating on each cut to make sure everything would fit together perfectly, he didn't even notice when his friends stumbled through the door behind him. But when one of them landed face down beneath his feet, Joseph jumped back, tripped over his friend, and ended up in a pile of sawdust staring up at the ceiling. What are you doing? exclaimed Joseph, still trying to gather his wits about him. Pulling himself up by the skeleton of Joseph's table, his friend David first tried to brush the wood shavings from his clothing, then blurted out between huffs and puffs, Mary is pregnant! At that, his other two buddies, Nathan and Aaron, let their tongues loose too, and between the three of them, their voices canceled out each other so that no one could be heard clearly. Joseph, just trying to restore order in his shop, shushed them and put his hand over their mouths one at a time, all the while hoping he had not heard David correctly. Surely he did not say that Mary was pregnant. Finally, after threatening them all with a hammer from his toolbox, the three interlopers slowed down long enough to, for Joseph to say, Why are you here and what are you talking about? The three stopped and looked at each other sheepishly, then at Joseph, all of them wanting desperately to tell him, but no one brave enough to do so. The gravity of what they were about to say would wound Joseph deeply, and that made them pause. That awkward pause seemed to go on forever to Joseph, until Nathan stepped forward and said, Joseph, Mary is pregnant. Joseph quickly grabbed a nearby chair, barely sitting, before his legs lost all strength to hold him. The room was spinning. His friends' faces were going in and out of focus. He was lightheaded and could barely breathe, much less speak. David and Nathan leaped to Joseph's side, trying to steady him, while Aaron ran to grab a cup of water, getting back just in time to hear Joseph respond weakly, How can you say such a thing? Taking turns telling their story, the three related how they had been walking past Mary's house on their way to the market. They had seen Mary and waved to her. Happy to see them, Mary ran over to them, obviously excited about something. When she made it to where they were standing, Mary asked, Are you going to see Joseph today? Tell him I have something I need to tell him. As they parted, Mary was walking back to her house when she stopped suddenly and either fell or fainted. They weren't sure which, but she ended up on the ground, flat on her back. As they all started, they were all startled when they saw what could not be mistaken. The loose-fitting shawl and clothes that Mary had been wearing could not hide what they hid when she was standing up. Betrayed by her fall, they could see that Mary was pregnant. Before they could get to her, Mary's mother ran out of the house and knelt, knelt down to help her, while at the same time trying to hide Mary from them. She gently lifted her to her feet, then spun her around so that Mary's back was facing them. Go on now, you three, Mary's mother sputtered. She is fine. She then whisked Mary back inside the door. Once they were out of earshot, David, Nathan, and Aaron looked at each other in disbelief. Mary? Not Mary. Not Joseph. And like an arrow released from its bow, they shot off as quickly as they could go, not stopping until they found themselves inside Joseph's workshop. Joseph was stunned. There was no other word for it. Stunned. He couldn't move. He couldn't speak. He couldn't think. Did you know about this? asked Aaron, half whispering the question, not wanting to hear the wrong answer from his buddy. Taking a deep drink from the water cup, Joseph was clearing the cobwebs from his mind, barely able to respond. No, I did not know. I, haven't, I have not even seen Mary in months. What are you going to do? asked Nathan. You know what you have the right to do lawfully, David stated with little emotion, then spelling it out for Joseph. The law says you can have her stoned since she obviously committed adultery. Joseph, not wanting to get angry easily, was now shocked by the reality and the truth of that statement, and he raised his voice more than he realized in protest. Stoned? Mary? Are you out of your mind? Never. No matter what. No. But surely you don't intend to still marry her, do you? Nathan interjected. You can't possibly marry her now, reinforced Aaron. Unthinkable, was all David could say. I need to be alone, blurted Joseph. This is too much for me to handle right now. Thank you for coming to tell me, but please leave. On the way out, Nathan looked back and offered a parting word. Is there anything I can do to help you, Joseph? No, my friend, said Joseph, his voice and spirit calmer now. I will figure it out. Then Nathan closed the door behind him, and Joseph was alone. But what was he going to do? For the rest of the day, he mulled over the different actions he could take and what might be the end result of each one, for him and for her. Just before climbing into bed for the night, Joseph had reached a decision. 
He would not bring public disgrace to Mary. He loved her too much. But his friends were right. He could not marry her either. It was just too much to ask in spite of his feelings for her. So Joseph decided to divorce Mary quietly. That way they could both go back to their lives. He would continue his carpentry business. She would live at home with her parents and her baby and maybe maybe even the father, whoever he was. Joseph pulled the covers up that night, never suspecting that in a few hours, everything would change again. Joseph, son of David? What? Who? Was he awake? Asleep? Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because it was is conceived in her. What is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Is this a dream? No, it's more than a dream. Joseph turned over in his bed. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save the, his people from their sins. Not a dream, thought Joseph. Not a dream. This is a vision. A vision from Yahweh's angel. When Joseph woke up, his whole world was different. It was as, as if everything had been made new. He hurriedly threw on some clothes and ran out the door, just as his rooster crowed three times. He was in a rush to go tell Mary about his dream, his vision. She had said that she had something to tell him. How surprised she would be to hear that he had something to tell her first. Something amazing. On the way to Mary's, just inside the town market, he ran into Nathan again, who was carting his family's goat cheese to their stall for the day. Stopping for just a moment, Joseph took Nathan aside and whispered in his ear, I am going to marry her after all. But why, asked Nathan, don't you know how it will tarnish your reputation? Think about what kind of life you will have here in Nazareth in the future, especially if the child isn't even yours. I will figure it out, said Joseph with a happy smile on his face. With God's help, I will figure it out. That concludes this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. I pray that you've learned something new about the Lord today, and He's given you some new insight into who He is and how much He loves you. Remember, the eternal God is our refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. May in that refuge today and those everlasting arms, you find the provision that you need, the protection that you need, the power that you need, and through those, the peace that you need. Remember, he said, my peace I give you. Peace be with you. Shalom.